Well, good morning, Journey Community Church, once again. Uh, my name is Liz Joyle, and I'm so glad to be here this morning to continue on in our Advent series called The Unlikely Advent of Jesus Christ. Um, as we begin, let's dive in and take a look at our theme verse for this Advent, 1 Corinthians 1.27. It's up on the slide, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As we continue on in the series this weekend, we're going to see again that in the story of Jesus' birth, God again chose something foolish and weak in the eyes of the world, something ordinary, so that we can't boast in our own abilities or standing, but only in Christ. So far in our series, if you've been with us, we've looked at Mary as the unlikely mother of God, We've looked at Joseph as the unlikely father of God, and we've seen and learned a lot about their obedience, their willingness to follow God. In the coming weeks, we're going to explore the shepherds as unlikely uh, witnesses to the birth of Jesus, and the magi, who are unlikely worshipers of Christ. But today, we're looking at the manger, the unlikely birthplace of God. So this is our one stop in this series that isn't about a person or a group of people, but about a location. So what can we learn about this unlikely birthplace of God that we find in the Christmas story, the manger? That's our question today. So we're gonna look together um, at the narrative of the birth story of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Um, If you can turn to the Bible in front of you or on your phone, Um, It's on page 724 in most of the Bibles, Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 1, go all the way to verse 20. Let me read it to us today. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. 
So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So let's set this scene a little bit. If you know Luke is a gospel writer, he's very detail-oriented. He was a physician by trade who did careful research and relied on eyewitness accounts to inform him of what he wrote about in Luke and Acts, the two books in the scriptures that are attributed to him. So we know then that details that he writes about, the location of Jesus' birth, are carefully researched and inserted into the narrative that he writes. So we see immediately in this passage, in the first verse, that Caesar Augustus has declared a census where everyone returned to their hometown to register or to be counted. Now this really happened. Roman rulers often called census um, to assert power and to count citizens for the purposes of taxation. So we see in verse four, if you look at it, in response to the call for the census, it says, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. I have a map of Israel that, we, that I put up here. I realize it's just too small to see anything, but just for a little bit of, um, of help seeing what things are, are where. Um, so Joseph, went, Joseph and Mary went from Nazareth um, in Galilee. So that was up to in the north of Israel. And they went down south to um, a small town called Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem. It's near Jerusalem, but outside of it. So um, it's not too far south of there, the center of Judaism. And that's about a distance of 80 miles. Um, and just to clarify, when it says Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, um, that's actually referring to the geography, to the terrain. So there were like hills and mountains. So even though they were going south, they were going up. Um, and it's about a distance of 80 miles, I said, and we can assume that even a, a young um, couple, a young pregnant woman, could probably make the trip on foot um, by in four or five days. But Bethlehem, the main detail here, it's a small town, not a big city. Kind of like a one-stop, stoplight sort of town. So Joseph and Mary ended up in Bethlehem for Jesus' birth, and that actually fulfilled prophecy in the book of Micah from the Old Testament. Be up on the slide from chapter 5, verse 2 and 4. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock. Matthew, the gospel writer, also refers to this prophecy in his account of the birth of Jesus in chapter two of his gospel, when Herod is asking his priests where the Messiah is. So, just to say it's a small town, but it had been prophesied that Jesus would be born there. So now we come to verse six in the scripture. While they were there, this is the, the main part, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
Now, other translations of the Bible, like the King James Version, which some of you may have grown up with that version in church, if you grew up in church, says, because there was no room for them in the inn. And this is where we get to that part in uh, children's Christmas pageant. So I'm curious, did any of you happen to grow up in church and were part of a Christmas pageant when you were younger? Yes, a few people. Did anyone happen to ever play the part of the innkeeper? Okay, maybe not. Well, if that had been you, if that had been your part, I would have to break it to you that unlike any other character in the Christmas pageant, that one, the innkeeper, is likely a fictional character. Now, Paul, my husband, tells me that he played the part of the innkeeper once in a pageant as a kid. And although it was a minor role, he would, he would have much appreciated a much bigger role. Um, he enjoyed it because he got to be surly and moody. He got to stand and firmly say, there's no room to Mary and Joseph in front of a cardboard structure that said Bethlehem Inn. It makes for a good pageant, but Bethlehem was a small town. It likely didn't even have an inn. There are different thoughts about what exactly this verse is referring to, but a good way to translate the Greek is similar to what the NIV says. Um, But another way could be, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room in the guest room. The Greek word that's often translated here as inn Um, like in the KJV, is kataluma, which is the same word used in Luke 22 and in Mark 14 when Jesus sent Peter and John ahead of him to make preparations for the Last Supper. He said there, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room? He's saying, where's the kataluma where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So we're talking about like the guest room or what was referred to as the upper room. But Luke... um, And then Luke uses a different Greek word when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan that you may or may not know, where um, the Good Samaritan brought the man who had been beaten up by robbers and was left at the side of the road, brought him to, um, to an inn. But that inn was the type of inn that we might think of with that word inn, a boarding house. But the word used in the birth narrative of Jesus by Luke is a word more or less for guest room. So it's not the inn or a motel. Again, this is a small town. Bethlehem was a small town, likely didn't even have an inn. Now, it's possible that the guest rooms in Bethlehem were at the front of the house for travelers, and family that visited visited the homes um, would stay there, and they had caves in the back for the animals. Now, it's possible also that Mary and Joseph had arrived too late. Maybe they were a little slower because Mary was pregnant. With all the other travelers coming back for the census, and so the guest room was already filled. But maybe Joseph's relatives did the best they could and put them in the back of the house. It's also possible that knowing that Mary was close to labor, the relatives placed her in the already unclean spot of the house because purity laws were so important back then, where the unclean animals were. And in the one space, they would actually have some measure of privacy with all the relatives around for the census. So again, we don't know exact details about what this looked like, and I'm not trying to ruin our vision of what the nativity scene was like. That's not the point, but I did want to explain a little and set the scene um, in today's passage for what it really was, a small town off the beaten path that didn't even have an inn. Very ordinary place. 
So let's look at the word, though, in the title of today's sermon, the manger. Manger comes from the Greek word for eat. It's what we think of um, when we think of the word manger, an animal feeding trough, sometimes translated as a corn crib. It's what the animals ate from. It could have been carved out of the side of a cave in the back of the house to go along with the image of Jesus being born in the back cave of a house. But what's interesting to me in this narrative, and I don't know if you could tell by the way I was reading the passage, is that Luke uses the word manger three times. See it up on the slide. In verse seven, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. And then in verse 12, the angel said to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then in verse 16, so the shepherds hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. By repeating it three times, Luke is communicating that the birth in a manger is key. He didn't have to say the word manger three times. Because remember, he is very meticulous about the details that he communicates. The angel says, even says that the manger is a sign to the shepherds. So what exactly is being communicated with the use of this word manger? That is our question today. So just like Mary pondered these things in her heart, let's ponder together three key points about the birth of Christ in the manger. First, I think the manger communicates some of what we've already seen, the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. Jesus was placed in an animal feeding trough after his birth. Jesus was born in a very regular, ordinary part of the house in a very regular, ordinary small town of Bethlehem. There was nothing flashy about it. It's quite unlikely and unexpected that the Jewish Messiah would be born this way. It was expected it would be very different, but he was born into the dirt and grime of everyday life. Luke, the gospel writer, wants to make sure that we see that the Messiah was born in humble circumstances, everyday circumstances like yours and like mine. To illustrate this point, Philip Yancey writes in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He writes, before Jesus, almost no pagan author had ever used humble as a compliment. Yet the events of Christmas point inexplicably to what seems like an oxymoron, a humble God. The God who came to earth came not in a raging whirlwind, nor a devouring fire. Unimaginably, the maker of all things shrank down, 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 so small as to become an ovum, a single fertilized egg, barely visible to the naked eye, an egg that would divide and redivide until a fetus took shape, enlarging cell by cell inside a nervous teenager. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself, said the Apostle Paul. A whirlwind or a fire or as a triumphant king, that's how Jesus could have come. I mean, he was the king of kings, lord of lords. What would that have been like? What would it have been like if Jesus had been born in a palace or a temple or another more luxurious place? Philip Yancey also talks about the contrast between Jesus' birth and the travels of, royal, of the British royal family today. 
So this isn't a birth story, but I found an article written by a worker who's been part of 20 royal tours of Queen Elizabeth II of England. So just to contrast the humility of Jesus' birth in a manger, God's trip to earth, um, with life in the palace or a royal visit. So I found this article. Here are a few things that are packed and preparations made for a visit from the Queen of England to your country. First, dozens and dozens of suitcases and boxes and hangers of clothes are packed. At least two outfits for every occasion or engagement in case of any emergencies. Now, the Queen's senior dresser, relatedly, she travels abroad weeks or even months in advance to make sure that the outfits that she has in mind for the queen to wear don't clash with the backgrounds that she's going to be at. An entourage of at least 34 people travel with the queen. They include, you might expect some of these, a personal hairdresser, personal doctor, but also the queen's personal artist to paint her favorite locations that she might come across. There are many other things, but my favorite item on the packing list is that the queen travels with a supply of her own blood in case of emergency. Wow. Now, Jesus arrived on earth from his major travel from heaven to earth in exactly the opposite way. God came to earth unprepared for any major or minor inconvenience or trouble. Jesus arrived on earth as the most vulnerable person he possibly could, a newborn baby. There was no safety net, probably no attendance, no doctor, no photographer to capture every moment. Luke highlights the manger, this animal feeding trough, in this text to make sure that we understand the humble nature of Jesus' birth. Philippians 2 Paul writes to the church, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The manger communicates the humility of Christ and the humble circumstances of his birth. It communicated that back then, and it communicates that to us today. So second, the manger communicates the accessibility of Jesus to us. There are many things in this world that we have access to depending on a lot of different things, depending on our education level, depending on our economic status, our lot in life, our luck, but not the gospel. Jesus is accessible to all, and the manger shows that. Birth in a palace or the temple would have shown the inaccessibility of God. If Jesus had been born in the temple, only the very, very religious people would have had access to Jesus. But we know that Jesus came for everyone. If Jesus had been born in a palace, only the rich and powerful and well-networked would have had access to him. 
another small subset of people. But again, we know that Jesus came for everyone. Only certain people can go to each of those places, and they would have been off limits to many or most people. But Jesus in the manger is accessible to the lowly shepherds in the field and the kings from the east who come later. Now it makes sense why the baby in the manger would be a sign to the shepherds. Verse 12 again, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A literal sign and a sign in the flesh that the savior of the world was for them, was accessible to them. Unclean, lowly, poor, uneducated, unlikely witnesses of the coming of Christ. The manger was essential to communicate the accessibility of Jesus. If it was a more expected birthplace, it would have been like anything else, where you had to be a certain way or have a certain skill or ability or have a certain nobility in order to know Jesus. Now, I work in campus ministry, and each year um, I bring groups of students down to New Orleans from New England in order to participate in service and recovery work, some of the work dating back to the hurricane that hit there in 2005. Now what I love about these trips, what's amazing about them, is that we bring students who are followers of Jesus and also students who are not followers of Jesus or who have walked away from the faith that they grew up in. One year, one such student that we brought was Tanisha. She had a faith background, but she had not been following Jesus for a while. But during our evening discussions about the intersection of Christian faith and service, Tanisha felt God drawing her close to him again. Now, we were a group of about 70, 75 staff and students in a volunteer housing facility. There wasn't a ton of space. We had large bunk rooms that we were in, so there wasn't much space for anyone to have, have to themselves, have privacy. But seeing that Tanisha was on the verge of an experience with the Lord, another staff, invited her into the only space that she could find to give Tanisha some privacy, the facility's kitchen. Now, imagine this space with me. Now, this was not a bright and beautiful farmhouse kitchen that we might see on HGTV. But it was an old, somewhat crusty, dark, and dank kitchen that had recently been cleaned by our student volunteers, but didn't look like it had been recently cleaned. Um, because there had been meal after meal made for large groups of people. It was just a regular, old, lowly, crusty kitchen. But in that space, Tanisha came in, and she fashioned a cross out of a broomstick and another piece of wood she found to make the space resemble as much as it could her grandmother's kitchen that had a cross. Because you see, her grandmother was a woman of faith, a person in her life who prayed every day that Tanisha would return to the Lord. And you know what Tanisha did? She knelt down in front of that cross and she prayed for the first time in a long time. She admitted to the Lord that he had been with her all that time that she had been away from him, that she had walked away. She said, Lord, I want to be your follower again. And she asked the Lord to help her walk with him again. It was a completely holy moment of God coming into a young woman's heart in a crusty old kitchen. Because Jesus was placed 
in a lowly manger, Tanisha could meet Jesus in an old, crusty kitchen. Because Jesus was placed in a lowly manger, we can meet Jesus here in this beautiful space, but also in our houses, in our homes, in our triple-deckers, no matter how decked out or how crusty they are. We can meet Jesus in hospitals, at bus stops, in office cubicles, in coffee shops, and in the woods, and in living rooms, and bedrooms, and stairwells, and street corners. In every place that we can imagine, we can meet Jesus. Because Jesus was born into a very ordinary house to ordinary people, we can meet him in our very ordinary lives, no matter who we are, or where we are, or what we've done. Jesus is accessible to all of us, and the manger shows us that. Now third, the manger communicates the willingness of God. The beginning of the Gospel of John is famous for referring to Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. In chapter one, verse 14, John writes, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now the message version, the message translation of this verse says, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. What a great way to understand that verse. Jesus came to live among us. I love the phrase, dwell with us, dwell among us, from the NIV, but the message translation really makes it real. Jesus, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus came to earth to be with us and moved into our neighborhood. He actually moved into Bethlehem but it could have been Bell Hill or Maine South or Beaverbrook. The Son left perfect communion with God in heaven to come down to the imperfect and flawed and messy earth, and he did so willingly to be with us. In his new Advent devotional, writer Paul David Tripps writes about this willingness of God. Now, I try to pick a portion of the devotional from December 2nd, but it's just all so good. So I'm just gonna read it all to you this morning. So be patient, but I think, I think it's good stuff. So let me read. One of the dark character qualities of sin that we don't recognize as much as we should is unwillingness. We are often unwilling to do what God says if it doesn't make sense to us. We are often unwilling to inconvenience ourselves for the needs of someone else. We're regularly unwilling to wait. We're often unwilling to be open and honest. We're too often unwilling to consider the loving rebuke of another. We struggle to be willing to say no to our own wrong thoughts and desires. We often struggle to be willing to answer God's ministry call. Often we are unwilling to admit that we are wrong. Too often we struggle to serve willingly and to give generously. Unwillingness is one of sin's powerful, damaging results. So here's what the Christmas story is all about. A willing savior is born to rescue unwilling people from themselves because there is no other way. 
Jesus was willing to leave the splendor of eternity to come to this broken and groaning world. He was willing to take on human flesh with all of its frailty. He was willing to endure an ignominious birth in a stable. He was willing to go through the dependency of childhood. He was willing to expose himself to all the hardships of life in this fallen world. He was willing to submit to his own law. He was willing to do his father's will at every point. He was willing to serve when he deserved to be served. He was willing to be misunderstood and mistreated. He was willing to endure rejection and gross injustice. He was willing to preach a message that would cause him personal harm. He was willing to suffer public mockery. He was willing to endure physical torture. He was willing to go through the pain of his father's rejection. He was willing to die. He was willing to rise and ascend to be our constant advocate. Jesus was willing. You see, it's not just the Christmas story. Rather, the entire redemptive story hinges on one thing, the eternal willingness of Jesus. Without his willingness, you and I would be without hope and without God. Without his willingness, we would be left with the power and curse of sin. Without his willingness, we would be eternally damned. During this season of celebrating, don't forget to stop and celebrate your Savior's willingness. His willingness is your hope in life, death, and eternity. But there's even more to be said. It's almost done, I promise. The advent willingness of Jesus is your guarantee that he continues to be willing today. Right here, right now, he is willing to love you on your very worst day. Right now, he is willing to forgive you again and again. Here and now, he is willing to be patient as you continue to grow and to mature. Right now, he is willing to battle on your behalf against evil within and without. Here and now, he is willing to teach you through his word. Now he is willing to supply every one of your spiritual needs. Now he is willing to be faithful, even when you're not. He, right now, is willing to empower you when you're weak and to restore you when you've fallen. He is willing to comfort you when you're discouraged and protect you when you've stepped into danger. And he remains willing to do everything necessary to feed, guide, sustain, and protect you until eternity is your final home. You see, the Advent story reminds us that our past, present, and future hope rest not on our own willingness, but on the willingness of the one for whom the angels sang, the shepherds worshiped, and the magi searched. Willing Jesus is the only hope for unwilling sinners. Thankful for Paul David Tripp's words. And what really more is there to say after I said all that? The manger, that animal feeding trough, that unlikely place that we find the baby Jesus in, when we read the scriptures about the first Christmas, that manger communicates the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. It communicates the accessibility of Jesus to each one of us. And it communicates the willingness of God to come down to earth to draw near to each one of us.
Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you came to this earth. God, thank you for this Advent season, for being a yearly marker for us to remember and reflect on your incarnation. It's just amazing that you would leave the glory of heaven to come to the muck and mire of this world, and we thank you. Thank you that you moved into my neighborhood, Lord. Thank you that you moved into our neighborhoods. Let us each walk out of here never doubting that you are accessible to each one of us. You are near. Thank you for your willingness to be our savior, even in spite of our own unwillingness to follow and obey you at times. We love you and we worship you, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, amen.